Good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would be finding the Song of Solomon in your Old Testament, we will be there exclusively this evening. And we're going to begin right there at the beginning in chapter 1. If you maybe have trouble finding the Song of Solomon in your Bible, maybe just open up to the dead center and you will be very, very close to it. We don't often visit the Song of Solomon, but that's where we're going to work from all night tonight. We're a little bit heavier on this side as opposed to this side. Not sure, it's really well filled out on this half of the building. That's not a knock on the folks on this side. It's a good group of folks over here too, but great to see everybody tonight. So glad that you're here. Uh, we do have guests once again, and we appreciate so much that you've come to be with us here as we worship the Lord a, a second time on this Lord's Day evening. Just a quick programming note, next week, beginning next Sunday and all throughout the following week, I will be preaching in a gospel meeting up in Mount Washington, Kentucky. And so occupying this pulpit seven days from now in the p.m. will be a good seasoned veteran preacher, Brother Brian McDonald, will be preaching in the evening. And then in the morning, we will have a newbie. Uh, Our brother Kane Atkinson will actually be preaching in the morning. And so I hope that we'll and trust that you will be uh, encouraging to those good men as you are to myself and I know all of the other men who teach and preach here and be praying for them as they get ready to deliver God's Word a week from today. Right now, though, it is the Song of Solomon. And I want to begin right there at the top in chapter 1. Begin there in verse number 1. The Song of Songs which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Last year, our congregational Bible reading plan took us through that collection of books that are found in the Old Testament known as the wisdom literature, or as they are sometimes referred to as the books of poetry. And to help us with those readings as we were reading throughout the year, I presented some lessons that I hoped would kind of help us to maximize our time and our efforts in those particular books. In January of 2016, I preached on how to get the most from Proverbs. In April, I preached on how to get the most from the Psalms. And then in July, I preached on how to get the most from the book of Ecclesiastes. And those lessons were all very well received, and folks told me that those were very helpful for them as they began reading those particular books. But then a couple of months went by, and I had someone come to me and ask, Josh, when are you going to finish those lessons? To which I kind of replied as if I really didn't even know what they were talking about. I said, well, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, you've preached on Psalms. You've preached on Proverbs. You've preached on Ecclesiastes. What about the next book in the wisdom literature? When are you going to talk about the Song of Solomon? To which I replied, eee. I was kind of hoping nobody would notice that I had left that one out actually very intentionally. Because if I'm being totally honest with you, for the bigger part of my life, I didn't really even know what the Song of Solomon was about. It just confused me. And then as I got a little bit older and kind of studied it a little bit more closely and I finally did figure out what it was about, it always just made me really uncomfortable. 
In fact, how many of you got a little bit uncomfortable just when we read those first three verses at the beginning of the book? Talking about virgins and wine and kissing on the mouth? Whoa! What is this about? What is up with that? I read that and I feel like I've stepped right into one of those Danielle Steele Harlequin romance novels. What's going on there? And I'll go ahead and tell you, I've read the remainder of the Song of Solomon and it doesn't get any better for the remaining seven chapters. This book is, shall we say, saucy, a little bit racy. It is most certainly not G-rated. In fact, I do believe that that is the reason that a lot of preachers, not just me, but a lot of other preachers, kind of tend to steer away from the Song of Solomon. Lots of Bible class teachers shy away from this book. Answer me this, when is the last time you sat in a Bible class and you studied the Song of Solomon? i tell you this, I've been in classes where we discussed and studied a lot of the really difficult books of the Bible. Revelation, Hebrews, Leviticus, Ezekiel, even studied in the Minor Prophets. I've been in classes on Habakkuk and Nahum, but I'll tell you this. In my 37 years of existence, I have never been in a class on the Song of Solomon. I think it is probably safe to say it is one of, if not the, most neglected book in all of Scripture. Scripture. Scripture, that reminds me. It is part of Scripture. Which means then that it falls directly under the umbrella, the banner of 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 that reminds us that all Scripture is inspired, breathed out by God. You see, this is not just Solomon's book. This is part of God's book. And since it is inspired by God, since it is part of Scripture, that means that it is profitable, Paul goes on to say in that passage. It is useful for us. And what I have come to realize, it took me a number of years to realize this, but this book actually serves a very unique purpose in the Bible. It fills a very unique niche in Scripture. And that is the Song of Solomon is designed to show us some things about love and about romance and about intimacy in a way that no other book of the Bible does. It explores the relationship between a man and a woman from beginning to end, from courtship to the honeymoon, all the way through the years of marriage and how romantic love can and should exist all throughout those those stages. And it deals with that in a surprisingly frank and candid manner. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but the Jews were actually so uncomfortable with the frankness with which this book speaks about romance and romantic love that according to the Jews, a young man had to be at least 30 years old before he was allowed to study it. Ancient scholars were actually so uncomfortable with the candid nature of this book that they decided, well, it just can't be a book about romance between a man and a woman. And so they decided it must be about something else. And so they decided that maybe it's about, it's an allegory. It's an allegory about God and Israel. Or maybe it's an allegory about Christ and the church. In fact, that's a very popular interpretation of the Song of Solomon, that it's about Jesus and His church. Well, we don't really have time to explore all of that this evening, but I'll just simply say this. That when you read the Song of Solomon and you try to make it about Christ and His church, 
That just makes the book weird. Don't do that. Don't read it in that way. Instead, we need to read this book, I believe, just at face value. We need to see it simply for what it is. It is a book that extols the virtues of romantic love as it expresses the will of God for marriage and for physical intimacy, which means, which means we ought to consider what this book has to offer. We ought to take this book off of the most neglected list. We ought to shift it over here to a list that says, I'm going to pay attention to this book. In fact, I'm hoping this evening that as we talk about the Song of Solomon, I'm hoping that I can say some things that might encourage you to give this book either another try or maybe even to try it for the very first time. And so that is why this evening I am preaching a long overdue lesson about getting the most from the Song of Solomon. And I thought that by pairing it with this morning's sermon, where we've already discussed some of those primary themes about marriage and the sexual relationship and love, I'm hoping that these sermons will kind of work together uh, today and they'll leave a lasting impression in our hearts and in our minds. And so tonight what I'd like to do for the few minutes that we have together is I'd like to just kind of give you kind of just a big picture overview And then share with you what I believe are maybe the three keys. Oh, come on, it gave away everything. The three keys for maximizing the contents of this one-of-a-kind book. If you're a note-taker, don't write down everything right now. Let me get to them one by one. See if we can maximize what's in this book and how we can get the very most from it. This book, it has a very different writing style. Much different than the other 65 books that comprise the Bible. Which means how we approach this book, how we read this book, how we process this book, it's going to need to be quite a bit different. And maybe the very first thing that needs to be said in that direction is this one right here. And that is, we're going to have to search for the storyline when we're reading Song of Solomon. This book does not read like, I don't know, like the book of Acts where Luke is just kind of narrating all of the action for us, right from chapter 1 all the way through the end. Nor does the Song of Solomon begin like many of the epistles of the Apostle Paul, where we're given all of the who, what, where, when, why, and how right there at the outset. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the saints who are at Corinth. We don't get any of that here in the Song of Solomon. Instead, this book just starts in what kind of feels like right in the middle of a conversation. Let him kiss me with kisses on the mouth. Whoa, hey, hold up. I feel like I'm kind of lost here. I need something explained to me here. Who's kissing who? What exactly is happening here? Well, that's why it's important that we do some searching. We'll have to actually find the storyline. Because this is a story primarily about two people. There are two main characters in this story. There is a woman and there is a man. And they fall in love. And it is their romance that we follow all throughout these eight chapters. And I should tell you that the man in this story, it is King Solomon, who is mentioned by name about a half dozen times throughout the book. And while we are never actually told the woman's name, many actually believe that this is Abishag, who we meet back in 1 Kings chapter 1, while we don't know her name, what we do know is this, and that is that this story unfolds, and this story is told primarily from the perspective of these two people. Either from their conversations that they are having with one another, or from the thoughts, kind of the inner dialogue that is going on as they think about each other. And so what we have is we have there in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, 
we find the growing of their love. They begin to love one another and we see that kind of blossoming. This is what we might call the courtship period. Young people, you may not be familiar with the term courtship. This might be what you would call the dating phase. And we see them here in chapter 1 and 2. We see them in a number of different settings getting to know one another, going on what we might call dates. For example, look in verse 4 of chapter 1. The king has brought me into his chambers. Why is he doing that? Well, of course, as the king, he's got kingly duties that need to be done. And so he brings her there so that he can get to know her, spend some time with her. Drop on down in the chapter, look in verse 12. The text tells us that they are there. The king is reclining at the couch, maybe your translation says. Even better translation of that would be at the table. Couch, you would recline at the table as you ate, and it would be kind of like a couch setting. But they're there having dinner together. Drop down to verse 17. They're out for a walk in the woods together. You may not get that at the first pass, but as you kind of piece together the poetic language that's used in verse 17, you come to realize, yeah, she's talking about being out in the forest and going for a walk. In chapter 2 and in verse 4, we find that they're attending some kind of a a social banquet together. And then in chapter 2 and verse 10 and down through verse 15, he invites her to go outside into nature and to go for a walk during the beauties of springtime. And as we observe them in all of these various settings, spending time together, getting to know one another, we see their love and we see their appreciation for one another blossom and grow. In fact, I think we know that this relationship has gotten very, very serious because by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 16, what is she saying? She says, my beloved is mine and I am his. She's saying, I believe that we belong together. Yet even as their love is growing in those first couple of chapter, so also is the fears that they have. Fears that maybe something's going to interfere. Maybe something's going to get in the way that's going to disrupt this relationship. Married folks, do you maybe remember what that was like when you were dating? Things are going well. You really are, you really think that this is the one. And there's the fear. There's this, this kind of in the back of your mind, there's the fear that something could go wrong. A potential in-law issue might come up and throw things uh, awry. Uh, A friend may say the wrong thing and just mess everything up. You may say something stupid and mess the whole thing up. There can be some fears there. And that's actually what we're seeing here. There's a little bit of fear here that something could come along and ruin this relationship. And in chapter 3, in those first five verses, excuse me there, that's what the young lady, that's what she's experiencing. She has this terrible dream in verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. The dream that she's going to lose this man that she has been smitten with. But don't despair. Nothing bad actually happens. Because by the time we get to the end of chapter 3, what we find is we find that they're getting married. There's going to be a wedding. And the two of them are able to reach that ultimate relationship that they both long to be in. It is of interest to me, ladies, I would have you notice this at the end of chapter 3, that nothing is said about the wedding itself. So often that's what young ladies are just so invested in, is the, the wedding ceremony. There's nothing said about the wedding here. Nothing said about what kind of gown she wore, what colors did she pick out, what kind of food did they serve, what kind of decorations did they put in the wedding hall. No, all of those details are passed over what we're told, which is the most important thing, verse 11, is that we're having a wedding. They get married. Because chapter 4 then goes right into 
Ah, there we go. Chapter 4 goes right into the wedding night. And it deals with the wedding night, the honeymoon, if you will, in a very candid and maybe even in some ways explicit fashion. But I don't believe that that's explicit in order to be crass or to be vulgar. God didn't put all that stuff in there so that we would recoil and go, ooh, no. I believe God intentionally placed those details in there because this is a book about love and about romance and about sexual intimacy. And so it is no wonder that God would want those things to be expressed in a very real way. Chapter 4 actually highlights, I'm not going to read those verses tonight, but chapter 4 does highlight some vital components and things that are necessary for meaningful intimacy between a husband and a wife. Things like consideration and sensitivity and patience. In fact, we kind of tend to chuckle at those first five verses where the husband is giving these compliments to his new bride and he's talking about her physical appearance and we kind of laugh about all that. Her hair is like a flock of goats running down the mountain. Her neck is like the Tower of David, a tower of stones. What in the world is that all about? But you know, even if those analogies, even if they don't you know, really resonate and register with us as 21st century Americans... Solomon's teaching us something, gentlemen especially. Solomon is teaching us something about how we ought to treat our wives. And not just how we treat them on the honeymoon or in those first few days of marriage, but all throughout marriage. In fact, that's really what the whole second half of the book is devoted to. How do you treat one another in marriage? How do you continue to grow your love to one another despite the various obstacles that married life often presents? Chapters 5 and 6 actually deals with a specific conflict. There's a conflict that arises between these two newlyweds. Something happens that threatens to to tear them apart and to destroy this relationship that they treasure. But through diligent effort on the part of the husband and diligent effort on the part of the wife, They're able to resolve that conflict and the marriage is able to go forward as it should. In fact, chapter 7, they go on to continue to reaffirm their love for each other. There's another scene that's given there in chapter 7 of their intimacy even now, assuming maybe we're weeks, months, maybe even years into the marriage. Verse 10, in fact, I've noticed there in chapter 7, look in verse 10 again, because she actually repeats that phrase that she had uttered back during their courtship, she says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. And then finally, chapter 8 concludes this book with some powerful admonitions and advice about what love is all about. Having watched these two, having observed them all throughout this entire process and all of these various stages, how it is that we can have a marriage that is full of love and strive for purity even in that relationship. I'm saying to you this evening that there is a story being told between chapter 1 and chapter 8. I do not believe, as some have suggested, I do not believe that the Song of Solomon is just a random collection of love poems. I believe there's more going on here than just that. There's a specific story being told, and yes, it does use some poetic language, and we need to be mindful of that. But I believe we need to search to find the storyline as we're reading Maybe closely connected to that would be this second important key. And that is when we're reading this book, we need to read this book, there we go, as though we are watching a play. 
Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Have, have you ever been to a play before? We know, if you've never been before, we know how a play works, don't we? When you go and you sit down to go watch a play or some kind of a theater production, there usually, generally speaking, there's not going to be a voice that comes over the PA system that's going to say, okay, everyone, here's what's about to happen. A guy is going to come out and he's going to talk to this girl and this is her name and this is what's going on here. And then they're going to fall in love. But then she's going to have a bad dream. And the next thing that's going to happen, they're going to get married. And they're going to have a honeymoon. And then they're going to have a conflict. And then they're going to resolve that conflict. And they're going to live happily ever after. And then the curtain comes up. And then all that stuff happens that he just got done telling you about. Is that how a play works? That's, that's not how a play works. You go watch a play. The voiceover guy is not going to explain everything to you about what's going to happen. Instead, the theater gets dark. The curtain opens. And then the characters just start talking. They just start doing their thing. Which means if you're sitting there watching a play, you've got to do what? Got to pay attention. You've got to listen to what's being said. You've got to notice and observe the, the, the background and what's going on in the scenery. You've got to pay close attention with your ears to the dialogue that's happening. Who's talking? Who are they talking to? You've got to put all that together so that you can figure out what's going on. And I believe in many ways... That's what we got to do when we're reading the Song of Solomon. This book is composed almost entirely of dialogue between the characters. And it is very different from other places in Scripture where there is dialogue because it does not say, and then Solomon said. You don't get that in this book. The people just talk. And so that means we've got to pay extra careful attention to figure out who it is that's talking. Who are they talking to? Is this dialogue between two people? Or is this just a monologue? This person is just thinking in their head or they're just talking out loud. Really, in some ways, the book kind of just functions like a script. Where if maybe some actors got together and said, hey, let's put on a production of the Song of Solomon. I actually believe you could just take the scriptural text And you just use that as a dialogue and you can act the whole thing out. However, and maybe you've noticed this before, one of the big challenges with that, reading Song of Solomon that way, is that it is sometimes difficult to tell who exactly is doing the talking. Sometimes the conversation switches back and forth so rapidly, we don't know who's actually speaking at any given moment. Let me show you, look in chapter 2. In chapter 2, look in verse 1. In chapter 2, verse 1, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now, if you just read all that together, and maybe you just kind of read the whole chapter all together, and just kind of running through those verses like that, you might walk away thinking that that was just one person doing all that talking. But actually, that's not the case. Verse 1 is the woman speaking. Verse 2 is the man's response to what the woman has said. And then verse 3 is the woman responding back to him. You see, we've got to pay attention here, don't we? And we want to notice maybe some of the gender terminology that is provided in the text. That lets us know. Those are clues to help us know who exactly is talking. In fact, I want you to know that the man and the woman... They aren't even the only characters who have speaking parts in this book. Would you look in chapter 6? In chapter 6 and in verse 1. Chapter 6 verse 1. Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among the women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? Who's that talking? 
Well, that's actually not the woman or the man. Because it's actually someone who's talking about the woman and about the man. In fact, it's not even one person talking here. It's a, it's a whole group of people talking here. Notice the use of the pronoun we. We want to do this with you. This is a group of individuals. And most likely right here, this is the group of maidens who kind of follow the woman around. And they pop up from time to time to show her support and encourage her in this new relationship she has. Now... If you are reading from a newer translation of the Bible, like the ESV that I read from, or the NIV, or even the New King James Version, then you may be kind of ahead of the game here. Because you probably are going to have the benefit of some little little subtitles, little headers above each of those sections that maybe is going to just tell you who exactly is talking. In the ESV that I read from, it'll just say, she is speaking, or he is speaking, or Others are speaking in those little headers really help us to sort that out. Uh, the New King James is even more specific. It says, the Shulamite, that's the woman, she's speaking. Or the Beloved, that's the man, he's speaking. Or the daughters of Jerusalem, that's those maidens, they're speaking. Or maybe even the Shulamite's brothers, they're the ones doing some speaking. All of those things, that's one of the things I really appreciate about many of our modern translations of the Bible is that they've given some of that uh, legwork, they've kind of already done a little bit of that work for us and helps us keep track of who's talking at any given time. If your Bible does not have that, I'm thinking of like an old King James Bible, there's a good chance that's not going to be in there, then maybe this would be a good opportunity to consult another translation of Scripture to help you as you read through that. Otherwise, you're probably going to have a tough time sorting out who's talking at any given point. Because remember... It's like we're watching a play. Except the actors are not actually physically in front of us. They're they're in here. And so we're going to have to use our minds to follow the progression of the action. Now somebody's maybe thinking, even as I say that, and I say you're going to have to use your mind, somebody's maybe thinking, ah, it just seems like a lot of work. You know, when I'm reading, I just, I just can't put in all that kind of mental effort and follow along in that way. I, I think I'll just skip Song of Solomon and go somewhere easier like, like the Gospel of Mark or, or Acts, somewhere where I can just, you know, kind of mindlessly just read through it. Well, before you decide that you're just going to abandon ship here, can I give you this third key and final key for reading the Song of Solomon? And that is when we're reading this book, we need to appreciate the abiding value that it possesses. You know, it is very easy to allow a literary style that we're not familiar with, or maybe just a literary style that, eh, that's just not really my cup of tea. It's really easy to allow that to keep us from investing ourselves in this unique book. But I am going to remind you what I said back in the introduction. God chose to make this book a part of His book. Which means there is a message in there for people today. First of all, let me break that out into three quick categories. First of all, there is a message in there for young people. As we read of this couple's courtship there in those first couple of chapters, we realize that these young people are actually wrestling with the same issues and the same temptations that our young people wrestle with during that courtship and dating stage as well. Those desires that young people often have to be sexually intimate, that's not just a 21st century phenomenon. 
Solomon and this young lady, they even experienced that all these years ago. In fact, would you look at chapter 2 again? In chapter 2, I want you to notice what this young lady says. And I'll tell you, I actually appreciate here just the honesty with which her words are recorded. In chapter 2, look in verse 5. In chapter 2, verse 5, she says, Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. I think even one translation just says, I'm lovesick. Verse 6, she says, Let his left hand be under my head, and his right hand embrace me. You understand what this young lady is saying? This young lady is expressing her physical longing that she has for this young man. She wants, she physically wants to be with him. She knows those temptations that arise whenever those desires are aroused within a person's body. Those are very natural and biological feelings, but those things occur whenever the hormones start to work and start to stir. Young people, it wasn't that long ago that I was in your shoes. I understand what this is talking about. I get this. I hope you get this. And so the question is, what do you do when that kind of temptation arises? That longing to physically be intimate with another person that you are not married to. When you are with your boyfriend. Or when you are with your girlfriend. When you are out on a date. Maybe when you are all alone. What do you do? I'll tell you what you do. You do what this young lady did. Would you notice the very next verse? Look at verse 7. Verse 7, she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field. That's thinking about the imagery here of, of, of a timid and shy animal. She says, I adjure you that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Do you understand what she's saying there? She is saying that there is a time and there is a place for sexual intimacy and the courtship phase, the dating phase is not that time. You hear me very clearly, young people, that is not the time for physical intimacy. You've got to wait. You've got to be patient. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, in describing love, love is patient. To be involved in the sexual relationship before marriage, not only is that sinful, it's called fornication, But it also destroys the specialness of that relationship when it occurs within the confines of marriage. These two characters that are in this story, they know the struggle of having to fight to maintain sexual purity. Can you see now? Can you see why this book would be valuable for young people? In fact, if you are a parent of a teenager or maybe a 20-something that's maybe in that dating stage still, do you see how this would be a valuable book for you as a mother or as a father? I believe these early chapters need to be pressed upon the hearts of our young people. Furthermore, this book has abiding value for people, for couples, who are about to get married. I think particularly about the intimacy that is described between the husband and the wife on the wedding night, There in chapter 4, I have come to the place where I believe that every good father should talk to his son about chapter 4 before he gets married. I believe every good mother should study chapter 4 with her daughter before she gets married. 
There are things in that chapter that couples who are about to enter into marital intimacy for the very first time, there are things in there that they can learn and benefit from. And unfortunately, these are the very passages that are often the very most ignored and the most neglected. And you know, I've thought about this. I know why that is. I know why it is that we ignore so much of the stuff here in the Song of Solomon. It's because we are discomforted by having to have conversations, particularly with a young person, particularly with your own child. We are discomforted at the idea of having conversations about sex. In fact, I'm pretty sure that both of these sermons today have made everybody get a case of the squirmies at some point or another. But I'm going to tell you something about that. I understand that. I get that. I understand why we have some of that discomfort. But I'm going to tell you something. We need to get over that. Because the devil, the devil is not afraid to go and preach his sermon about sex, is he? The devil's not ashamed. The devil will shout his sermon about sex from the rooftops. Anybody and everybody that will pay attention to him, he is glad to say what he wants to say about sex. Why then? Why then are God's people so timid and so retired? God's people need to get their courage together. And we need to be ready to speak the truth, yes, even candidly, about the sexual relationship. And I believe the Song of Solomon really helps us to do that. And then finally this evening, this book does indeed hold tremendous value for couples who are already married. In fact, I believe this book holds value even for couples that have been married for a very, very long time. Because what this book reminds us of is that romance is intended to be a part of married life all throughout your life together. That it is not something that is supposed to end once the honeymoon is over. Romance is not this this phase that we just kind of, okay, we got that out of our system, we've passed that now, and once we've now passed through that, we are now hopelessly and helplessly chained to this person for all the rest of our lives and we can't stand it. That's not right. That's not what the Lord wants. In fact, I'll say this evening, if that is where you are in your marriage this evening, all the love and all the romance and any kind of desire that you have for your for your mate, if it's just gone, and you maybe just kind of resigned yourself to, well, that's just kind of the way it is. This is just inevitable. It's just the way it's going to be. Then listen to me. Something ain't right in your house. That is not God's plan for your marriage. Romance is not some mystical... And I hope nobody this evening is just thinking, when I say the word romance, that you're just thinking about sex. Romance is so much more than that. And romance is not some mystical force that just kind of, it blows in and it blows out and sometimes we're able to catch it and other times it just kind of escapes us and we just don't know when it's going to show up. No. We actually can learn how romance works. And we can learn that from reading the Song of Solomon. In fact, romance is kindled when we do some of the things that this young man and this young woman were doing right back in the very beginning. Where, for example, we just spend time together. We notice like a half dozen different examples just in those first two chapters of all of the places that they went together. All the things that they did together. The experiences that they shared together. They did stuff with one another. That's called companionship. Not only that, but they said kind things to each other. Things that the other person needed to hear. In fact, I'll call your attention to chapter 1 again. Look in verse 15. Look at what he says to her. He says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. 
Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. He tells her how beautiful she is. And I'll be honest with you, that verse convicts me. Because I know for a fact that I don't tell my wife how beautiful she is nearly as much as I did once upon a time. And I recognize I need to do better. I'm reading Song of Solomon and I'm learning something. But verse 16, let's take another step. Look at verse 16. She then says, Behold, to her, to the man, Behold, you are beautiful. I think the New American Standard says, Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Truly delightful. She reciprocates that idea. Ladies, I'm not trying to beg for compliments for your husbands this evening. But ladies, I will tell you, your husband does need to hear these kinds of things from time to time. And I'll tell you that if this kind, and these are just a couple of quick examples, if this kind of loving communication, if that does not exist in your home and in your relationship, then that would most surely explain why there's not any romance there. And the fact of the matter is, if that spark, that love that maybe existed way back in the past, it's not there anymore. That passion, that that zest, that life in your marriage. If it's not there, what you need to do, you need to stop blaming other people. You need to stop blaming circumstances. Stop blaming the kids. What you need to realize is if those things are absent, it's because you have chosen not to do what you ought to be doing. And I believe the sooner that we recommit ourselves to doing the kinds of things that maybe we did back in those early stages of the relationship, then the sooner we can know and experience that little bit of paradise here on earth that God makes possible in a good and godly marriage. The Song of Solomon shows us that that kind of marriage that that kind of relationship, it's not a pipe dream. It's not a fantasy. No, it is possible. And the reason that I know it is possible is because God placed that book within the pages of His Word. And so I hope that whatever stage you find yourself in in life, I hope that maybe your interest has been piqued a little bit so that you will want a little bit more of what this timeless book has to offer And that you will appropriate the necessary truths in your life so that you can know the joys and the wonders that God describes in this book. You know, we talked today and even this evening about some of the struggles and the difficulties and the problems that come along in life. And how even when we have problems and difficulties and struggles in things like our marriages, God's book has answers. And that's why I love this book more than any other book. Because it does have the answers to life's issues and life's problems. And that is especially true whenever we talk about life's biggest issue, life's biggest problem, the problem of sin. God's book has answers. In fact, God's book has the answers. And those answers are all wrapped up in the person of Jesus the Christ. This evening we are extending Christ's invitation. It is an invitation for you to come and to receive healing from sin, that you can be forgiven of your sins by obeying Him, confessing His name, being baptized in water for the remission of each and every sin. Tonight, all things are ready for you to become a Christian. We just need you to say something. We just need you to come and tell us what we can do for you. Brother or sister, if there's sin in your life, if you've not been living faithfully for the Lord, then this also is an invitation for you, an invitation to come. Express those things, whatever it is that might be on your heart. 
ask your brethren here to pray with you and encourage you and help you in whatever other way that we can. This is the Lord's invitation and the Lord has answers. If you need to come and get those answers and those solutions, then this invitation is for you. Won't you come right now while we stand and while we sing?